On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. David Moffat about the atonement. So we cover all sorts of topics like what are the various views on the atonement that are traditionally focused on? Should we consider more than just the cross when we think about atonement? And if so, how does the atonement involve things outside of the cross? What about things like the resurrection, the ascension, or the exaltation? And how does the view of atonement in Hebrews fit with other books of the Bible? For example, how should we understand Isaiah 53 in light of how Hebrews thinks of the atonement and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And this is a podcast devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And if you know anything about us, you're familiar with the fact that we're trying to, and when we say serious thinking, we're trying to cultivate or encourage sort of an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we don't think that serious thinking means being a jerk. It means having a virtuous disposition about how we understand things and how we engage others. So it's both like having sort of a charitable disposition in like reading other people's texts, but then in our actual response to them and how we engage them and talk to them, it's supposed to be characterized by that in all manners. Um, But we also realized that in our own, um, me and Brandon started the podcast, I don't know, three or four years ago, in our own Baptist sort of context, there was a, almost a stigma with associated with more academically inclined learning. And we wanted to push back against that and say, no, you, you can do serious thinking in a Protestant context. Um, So we've tried to handle both of these things well. And I'm excited to introduce you all today to Dr. David Moffat about, we're going to be talking about uh, atonement. And he's got a new book, uh, recently new, called Rethinking the Atonement. And if you know our editor for Analytic Theology, Chris Wisnicki, he found this to be his favorite book from the last year. And he's done a ton of stuff on atonement. Um, So not only can I recommend it, but I can recommend it from Chris's vantage point, who's an expert on atonement stuff. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, there's a lot of material that we could cover. Um, but before we do get started, I, I want to just have a little bit of background on what you do, David. Like, just tell me, like, where, where are you at now? And then maybe what got you interested in devoting a ton of time and research to the atonement? Yeah, thank you. Um, Right, so I currently uh, am a reader uh, in New Testament studies at the University of St. Andrews. So I teach in our Divinity School, which is St. Mary's College. Um, And I've been here in Scotland for about 10 years. Uh, You can tell from my accent um, that I am originally from the U.S. Many people are disappointed when I start talking and don't have that Scottish accent, even though I have that Scottish last name. Um, Atonement. Well, I never actually imagined I would start dealing with atonement. Um, I uh, did my doctoral studies at Duke University and uh, I've always, for a long time, I've been interested in the epistle to the Hebrews. Um, and one of the issues that caught my attention in that text was um, in a lot of scholarly literature in the modern era, uh, there's a general assumption that Hebrews really has very little concern for Jesus' resurrection, at least as a kind of discrete 
bodily event. So uh, I set out to write a doctoral dissertation um, examining that position, and um, I thought I had I could see evidence that suggested that Jesus' resurrection was actually a kind of fundamental presupposition or assumption for Hebrews, um, something that you needed to assume in order to see the logic play out in the arguments of that homily. And as I did that, I came face to face with a problem uh, that set me thinking about atonement. Um, and just briefly, the problem was in Hebrews at various points, the author talks about Jesus passing through the heavens um, and then appearing before the face of God where he seems to offer himself as a sacrifice to the Father. Um, I had always read that and many modern interpreters also, not all, but many also read that as metaphorical language intended to describe the crucifixion. Um, so when, when Hebrews talks about Jesus offering his body to the Father, we tend to read that as a way of talking about Jesus dying on the cross, since we tend to assume that the cross is the center of Jesus' sacrifice, the place where he offers himself to God. Um, but once you put a bodily resurrection into that sort of an account of Jesus offering himself to the Father, uh, presumably after having passed through the heavens, um, suddenly it became very difficult for me to hold together the idea that the cross is the center of Jesus' sacrifice where he offers himself to God, when Hebrews seems to say that after he ascends or passes through the heavens, he offers himself to God. So for me personally, it was really trying to argue for the reality uh, and significance of Jesus' bodily resurrection as an assumption in the argument of Hebrews that caused me to start completely rethinking how I understood Jewish sacrifice to work, and then of course, in connection with sacrifice, how I understood atonement uh, to be conceptualized and, as it were, functioning um, in the epistle to the Hebrews. Yeah, this is this, so. This is going to be a lot of fun. So, I would imagine that probably a good segment of our listeners probably think of the cross as the center of the atonement. Sure. So, I, I want to know, I guess, two things as we sort of like launch into the discussion. Number one is like traditionally, as I think about views of the atonement, has it always been the case that the cross is viewed as the center, or has there been various sort of conceptions? And then number two, why, I guess, give me the elevator pitch in your mind of why you think you should conceptualize more than just the cross when you do think of atonement. Yeah, great. Um, uh, yeah, so actually, um, I've quite naturally and justifiably that and understandably received uh, some significant pushback on some of the claims for which I've argued. Um, and one of the, the points of pushback has been, um, well, nobody in, in the history of um, Christian reflection uh, has, especially in the book of Hebrews, has ever argued that anything other than the cross is the center uh, of atonement. And, um, you know, so that, that just got me thinking, like, well, I wonder if that's right. Uh, and this is a kind of testable thing. You can go back and 
plow through certain um, ancient texts, uh, patristic texts, and ask, uh, how did people think about Hebrews? And I was shocked to find when I actually did that, that there's um, quite significant and substantial evidence for uh, patristic thinkers um, in the first few centuries of uh, Christianity, arguing that there's a lot more to um, Jesus' salvific work than just the cross. Uh, the cross is not the center. Um, and this is going to be, you know, a painting with a bit of a broad brush, but I think it's fair to say that for, for several patristic uh, interpreters, the center is actually the incarnation. And, and by the incarnation, I don't mean the Son of God becoming a human being. That's part of it. But actually the fact that the Son of God became a human being, lived as a human being, died as a human being, rose from the dead as a human being, and ascended to the Father as a human being. So it's the, the as it were, full sweep of the incarnation. Um, so to, you know, one could go on and on about this. I have a chapter in the book that you referred to that actually traces some of this very evidence. Um, but, but the short answer to sum that up is that, in fact, in the history of Christian reflection, um, there are uh, these individuals uh, who have thought very hard about the fact that uh, the incarnation of the Son of God continues even now, and that that has direct implications for how we think about atonement. Um, and to the second point, I apologize, you have to remind me again of uh, what it was you were you were asking there. So I think the idea of the question is primarily like, if we're going to think about something besides the cross, right. like how does that end up actually looking? Oh, right. I, I, okay. I, as I think, I'm just thinking about the, the average person who probably listens to this podcast. I mean, there's, there's a good smattering of people, but I would guess that most of them intuitively think cross is center. And then if you mention, well, the resurrection is part of the atonement, they'd probably might have a little bit of a head scratch and say, well, yeah. how, how does that fit? Yeah, which is fair enough. Um, okay, so I think uh, if you'll allow me uh, to take a brief step back and just sort of reflect for a moment on what we mean by this language of atonement. Um, it, I think it's, it's fair to say that uh, atonement um, is a theological term, um, not in the way it's typically used, uh, strictly speaking, a biblical term. That is to say, it doesn't, strictly speaking, translate one particular biblical word, either in Hebrew or Greek. Um, and as a theological term, it tends to function as a sort of big umbrella um, word that holds within it a number of different particular images or categories. Um, and all of this is sort of a way of saying that, uh, a way of talking about Jesus' salvific work. Um, I think it's fair to say that for many people, the language of atonement is equal to the concept of soteriology or a, a broader way of thinking about Jesus' salvific work. Um, and then with that then comes the idea that the cross is the place where Jesus' salvific work was really accomplished. Um, sometimes, you know, the, the text from John 19, it is finished, gets throws in, thrown in as a, a kind of proof text to suggest that even Jesus thought all the atoning work or salvific work was completed on the cross. Um, so if you hold that sort of view, then, yeah, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to talk about 
things uh, pertaining to salvation or atonement extending beyond the cross. But there's there's a sort of problem with this language of atonement that I think owes its roots primarily to the translation work of Tyndale. And that is that Tyndale first uses this language to translate concepts in the New Testament relating to reconciliation. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. Atonement, at one mint, seems to be about reconciling, bringing estranged parties together to be at one. But when Tyndale subsequently, after he translates the New Testament, turned his attention to translating the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, he used the same language when he came across this idea of um, something happening in Jewish sacrifice, or say in Levitical sacrifice, um, uh, that um, fixes a certain kind of problem and allows for forgiveness uh, as an end result. Okay, so the, the Hebrew word underlying this is Kipper. Um, we don't have to go too much into the weeds on that, but um, but by translating this Hebrew word atonement, um, it kind of began to look then like the idea of Jesus' death reconciling people to God, as Paul talks about in Romans five eleven, or Second Corinthians five eighteen through twenty. Um, if we use atonement in that context. And then we go and we use atonement in the context of Levitical sacrifice, where blood applied to an altar does something that then subsequently allows for forgiveness. Um, it kind of makes it look like blood applied to an altar and the death of Jesus are the same sort of thing. Um, and the death of Jesus on, is oftentimes can be thought of as occurring on the altar of the cross, um, as if there's some kind of inherent analogy between the crucifixion and uh, Jewish sacrifice on the altar at the temple. All right, now I mention all that to say then that um, if you assume that atonement refers to all of the saving work that Jesus does, and you assume that this really is fundamentally a sacrificial idea, uh, then it becomes very easy to have a kind of reductive account of Jesus' atoning work as being the same as his sacrificial work and as all occurring on the cross. Okay, uh, I hope that's clear. That's just a bit of background then or lead up to the question you raised. Because um, what I think is going on in Jewish sacrifice, I'm not alone on this point, and it was really the epistle to the Hebrews that force me to, to think differently about some of these matters, is that in sacrifice, you're actually bringing a gift to God, and it actually enters into God's presence at the temple. And the altar is the primary place where this conveyance of the gift into God's presence occurs. And the gift consists, uh, when it's an animal sacrifice, of blood and flesh, certain parts of the animal. Um, now, this directional idea, the fact that, that the sacrifice is being brought into God's presence, it goes from an offerer to a priest to an altar and then into the presence of God, actually seems to correlate pretty well with certain things that happen in Hebrews, where the author talks about Jesus as a high priest who passes through the heavens, enters the heavenly sanctuary, 
goes into the heavenly holy of holies and then presents himself before God as both high priest and sacrifice. And that actually looks very similar to a kind of model of atonement, if we want to use that language, in Levitical sacrifice, where dealing with sin, bringing some kind of purification, and also then subsequently uh, allowing for forgiveness are all things that are connected with bringing blood and flesh to the altar at the Jewish temple. Um, now that very that much more specific idea of atonement uh, is one that, um, if Hebrews is working with it, uh, could be described as sacrificial atonement, the kind of thing that happens when, by analogy with Levitical sacrifice, you bring a gift to God. And that, I would suggest, is a more narrow way of thinking about atonement than the broader soteriological account. But, and this will, I think, finally come to an answer to your question, if sacrificial atonement is largely dependent on bringing the gift into the presence of God, then you need more than the crucifixion for Jesus to offer himself sacrificially to the Father. What you also need is the resurrection in which the Son of God takes on blood and flesh forever, perfected blood and flesh. He is a human being, and then takes that humanity into the presence of God by passing through the heavens, where he then subsequently presents himself to the Father and offers himself, his humanity, alive to the Father as a sacrifice. And that brings along uh, with an, uh, as it, by analogy rather, to what happens in Levitical sacrifice, certain kinds of salvific um, benefits to God's people, namely forgiveness, purification, the kinds of things that Jewish sacrifice was aiming to accomplish. Um, but that also then suggests that if we think about atonement in the broader sense of Jesus' salvific work, it must be a much bigger concept than just a sacrificial account, which is another way of saying that Hebrews, and I think, uh, the death of Jesus is fully salvific. It does salvific work, but it's not the sum total of his sacrificial work. Yeah. So uh, I've got a little bit of a practical question at this point as I think about it. It seems that there's probably got to be a, like a lot of sort of like teaching to like help people to understand that atonement means something broader than just this narrow conception. Do you have any advice? We have a lot of pastors who listen for like helping people to think through like to broaden their horizons with this. Is it better to use different terminology or is there a way to re rehabilitate sort of like the intuitions that we have when we hear that terminology of atonement? Oh, that's nice. I like that. Uh, rehabilitate intuitions. Uh, I think I prefer to go that direction. Um, I kicked around myself a bit whether or not we should, whether or not I should try to use different language. Um, but I don't know that that's helpful. Um, I think it's more helpful to try and think carefully about the language we use in conjunction with biblical texts. Uh, I guess one thing I would say is it's even though it's not maybe the most ex most people won't initially at least find it very exciting 
I think we should start spending a bit more time in Leviticus and really trying to wrap our minds around what's going on um, and allow ourselves to read from Leviticus to the New Testament, as it were, and not just from the New Testament to Leviticus, uh, if that makes sense. Um, so kind of just doing some Bible study that really focuses on Leviticus um, and tries to just let the details of that text inform how we think about sacrifice um, could be useful. Um, but there are also, I think, some things that we can do um, that just kind of raise questions to prompt us to start thinking. Um, and one question I think that can be raised is, well, Hebrews 7.25 says that um, because Jesus always lives, he is able to save his people completely. Um, and then it goes on to give a reason for that, and it's because he is always interceding for them. Um, well, if as a teaching tool we just stop and ask the question, uh, why do we need Jesus to intercede for us now? Um, or alternatively, what would happen if Jesus stopped interceding for us? These are questions that I haven't myself often heard in um, the kind of church context that I grew up in. But once you raise these questions, I think they open up space for some really interesting thinking that that clearly has to have that that has to uh, or that is likely to be thinking with the text it's not a question that's coming necessarily from outside the text um, and, it, and once you ask the question well what would happen if Jesus stopped interceding for us well a text like Hebrews 7:25 would seem to suggest that um, well he's not able to save his people completely but if he's not able to save his people completely, then that would seem to suggest there's got to be more to what Jesus does to save his people than just die on the cross, um, because we actually need his ongoing intercession. And that you know opens up space to look at some other texts, like Romans 8:34, for example, where Paul says, um, you know, who is there to condemn? It's Christ Jesus who died. Absolutely, yes. But even more, um, was raised and is seating at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Well, there's that idea, even in Paul. Um, and it's precisely on the back of that, that that Paul can then go on to say, therefore nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he died, of course, but also because he rose and because he's interceding for us. Um Similar ideas seem to be there in, in 1 John uh, 1, 7 through 2, 2. Um, so I, I raise that as a kind of prompt or a question that one can throw out if there's a context of, say, Bible study or discussion, where we can challenge ourselves to just sort of reevaluate some categories and, and ask, well, why is intercession apparently so important in Hebrews, in Romans 8, in 1 John 2? Um, it's there. Why Why is it important? And maybe also why have we tended perhaps to overlook it? Um, I find those to be useful ways to um, sort of get people thinking. 
they're not sort of the most uh, it's not a, a handy way to give you um, an illustration that you can use to go teach with but I do think that they're the kinds of questions that can prompt discussion and really lead to interesting teaching moments yeah no that, that's really helpful so I want to follow up on the the Leviticus sort of idea so I mean, I know there's probably a lot of reasons a lot of people don't read Leviticus. It seems like it's the natural like end of everybody's Bible reading journey. <laughs> <laughs> they get excited in Genesis and Exodus, and then suddenly they hit Leviticus, and it's it sort of dies. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. it seems that when I hear a lot of preaching on the atonement, invariably the main text that you hear is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is like sort of like the locus atonement text. That does that seem to entail that hey the cross is a center or should we be reading that in light of Leviticus and I I mean I shouldn't, you're gonna say yes and then I want to know like how does that really work like what's the practical sort of like theological advice on how we should think about how texts like that relate to each other yeah um, okay so I, I'm going to assume that there's a certain level of theological knowledge um, but I also assume that people can go and check some of these things with Google and whatnot. Um, so Isaiah 53 is a kind of classic text, uh, clearly an important text for early Christians as they reflected on the crucifixion. I, I absolutely think that Isaiah 53 is being used by early Christians to reflect on the cross. Um, I also think, uh, although some people assume that I don't think this, that Isaiah 53 and a notion of Jesus' death, uh, when read in light of Isaiah 53, present us with ideas that are like the sort of thing today we might call penal substitutionary atonement. That is to say, it seems to me that Isaiah 53 is presenting the servant figure as someone who suffers on behalf of and for the sins of the people uh, whom he represents, uh, and that in the process of this, this suffering, um, which is vicarious, it's for the people because they they seem not to be able to to be to endure it or face it themselves. Um, in the process of that, there is some kind of salvific benefit um, that comes to the people. Now, what I would want to suggest here is that if we're reading this idea in Isaiah in its context, it's an idea that is not actually directly sacrificial. In fact, we could think about it as extra sacrificial. And what I mean, I mean something very particular by that. And, and that is, if we go back and read the Pentateuch in a kind of linear fashion, we know that the author of Hebrews seemed to want to read the, the first five books of the Bible that way, uh, as did Paul, um, so that they can make arguments based on things that happen earlier um, and things that happen later. If we read in that way, then um, there's something that, that I think we, we don't always notice as modern interpreters, and that is that while there are sacrificial rituals which occur before the Exodus and before uh, God makes his covenant with Moses and his people, there is no Levitical sacrifice before the covenant is inaugurated. Um, this, this is pretty clear when you actually just look at the flow of the Pentateuch. 
First the people are redeemed from Egypt. Then they go into the wilderness and God makes his covenant with his people. And then he reveals to Moses uh, whatever Moses sees on the mountain, the plans for the tabernacle. And then Moses inaugurates the priesthood. The Levitical priesthood comes into existence. And it's only subsequent to that then that Levitical sacrifice in the tabernacle begins. Now, I've taken the time to make that point because um, it's clear in, say, Leviticus chapter 26, I think it's verse 31, but also at various points in Deuteronomy, that this covenant can be broken in certain ways. The people can bring upon themselves the curses of the covenant rather than receive the blessings of the covenant. They can do this by being idolatrous primarily, but um, you know, refusing to follow God's laws. And a text like Leviticus 26.31 says that if the people find themselves in that position, God will refuse to accept their sacrifices. The language is that he will refuse to smell the pleasing odor uh, of those sacrifices. And if God refuses to accept the sacrifices, then you're in a real trouble in the covenant relationship because sacrifice is there to help maintain and mediate aspects of the covenant relationship. Right? So just to summarize that point, Levitical sacrifice functions within the Mosaic covenant, not outside it. It's not the way you get into the covenant. It's not even the way you fix the covenant when it's fractured or broken. It's there within the covenant to maintain the relationship uh, between God and his people that we call the covenant. Well, Isaiah 53, to come back to that text, is a text which um, is focusing on the situation of the people having broken the covenant and gone into exile. And how do you fix that problem? Well, I think if you think through the Pentateuch the way I've suggested some early Christians clearly did, um, in a linear fashion, you cannot fix that problem by just offering God's sacrifice. You need to first restore the covenant relationship. And Isaiah 53 seems to present the servant as a special means by which God will restore that relationship. And that's where it seems like the servant is bearing sin and suffering and dying on behalf of the people in order to then restore the relationship. And shortly after Isaiah 53 are these texts in Isaiah 54, 55, 56, where in fact the people return to the land and the covenant relationship is restored. Well, it's in that sort of context that sacrifice would then be renewed and restored as well as a way of maintaining this covenant relationship. All right, now what I want to suggest with early Christianity is that they were capable of reading texts in ways that made these kinds of distinctions. And it seems to me quite plausible that the earliest Christians highlighted the crucifixion as a means of inaugurating the new covenant relationship. Um, and they read it as also a means of performing some kind of new exodus. It's not accidental for early Christians that Jesus is crucified at Passover. 
Um, but if Jesus is bringing his people out of some kind of enslaving situation, uh, performing a new exodus at his death, and if he is uh, simultaneously inaugurating uh, or perhaps renewing the covenant relationship between God and his people, um, that's all really important work at the front end of this covenant relationship. Uh, but it's not necessarily the same thing as the kind of priestly and sacrificial work that then maintains that covenant relationship. Um, so if I can go back to what I said earlier about salvation being bigger than just a sacrificial category, um, atonement in that sense, um, then there are ways of, of viewing the work of Jesus on the cross as related to a text like Isaiah 53, as doing particular kind of salvific work without necessarily having to reduce or conflate that salvific work with the work that a priest does when offering a sacrifice to God in order to maintain the covenant relationship. Um, let me pause there and see if that uh, at all sort of touches on what you were asking in your question about how I'm reading Isaiah 53. Yeah, no, that definitely touches on it. And some of the things you said there towards the end, I think I wanted to have a little bit of like follow up on. So particularly like the, the New Exodus sort of idea, which I think you, your second chapter, I guess, I don't know if you call it your second chapter or your first one since it's after the introduction being modeled on Moses, like tease out that idea for me because I, I would imagine a lot of people when they think about atonement aren't necessarily thinking Moses in the back of their mind. <laughs> right, right. Um, okay, so uh, I think it's important here to just emphasize that most of the work that I'm doing in the book is related to the book of Hebrews. It is, if you will, an attempt to think theologically with Hebrews. Uh, I'm not saying I get it right, but that's what I'm trying to do. And I stress that because that's um, at least notionally uh, a different exercise than trying to think synthetically uh, in a theological way across the entire New Testament, or then again across the entire biblical canon. Okay. Um, I stress that because what I'm about to say in, in the chapter that you, you pointed out is really a way to try and think about some things that are in Hebrews. And I'm not trying to suggest that this is a new systematic theological account of how we should think about Jesus' salvific work. So I, just, I hope that's clear to your listeners. Um, when it comes to Moses in Hebrews, uh, so, so one thing that many modern, again, modern commentators on Hebrews have argued or suggested is that Hebrews doesn't really have a lot of room to think about the Passover. Uh, it does get mentioned um, in Hebrews 11.28, where the author refers to Moses manipulating blood in such a way that he's able to defeat, in some sense, the destroyer, uh, and then free the firstborn. Um, that's a bit of interpretive work that I'm that I'm giving there, but that seems to be one of the things that the author argues in Hebrews eleven twenty eight. Um, but this idea of the destroyer is really interesting. It only shows up that one time in Hebrews in that language, but when we look at other 
uh, texts that we know were in existence around the time of Jesus and early Christianity, um, there seems to be evidence in a text like the text known as the Book of Jubilees, for example, for an understanding of this destroyer figure as being associated with Satan or the devil, um, the malevolent angelic being who is intent on destroying God's people. Uh, now, what Jubilees does, uh, I happen to think is really interesting um, with respect to any number of things, but especially this idea of the destroyer. Jubilees goes back, uh, at least implicitly, to Exodus 12.23, which uh, I think Hebrews 11.28 is also alluding to. In the Exodus account, in most cases in Exodus 12, it's the Lord who strikes down the firstborn. But in Exodus 12.23, there is this one reference, the idea that you put the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts and lintels, and um, the Lord will pass over. But it, it says in Exodus 12.23 explicitly that the destroyer will be prevented from entering the house and striking down the firstborn. Um, as Jubilees reflects on this idea, uh, we get to see some ways that these ancient Jewish people were thinking about a kind of, uh, shall we call it a Satanology, <laughs> a broader account of this Satan figure. Um, because Jubilees views this destroyer as connected to the Satan figure. And uh, through a number of passages, but especially as, as it retells Exodus 12, it seems to be clear that Jubilees is presenting Satan as the real enemy who's keeping the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt. So it's not only just this destroyer idea, but also, um, well... Uh, when Exodus says that the Lord uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart, Jubilees interprets that as Satan, or calls, the figure is called Mastema in that text, um, is the one who's almost possessing Pharaoh and hardening his heart and preventing the freedom of the people. All right, now I bring that all up because from a standpoint like Jubilees, um, you can then look at the Exodus as not just uh, God liberating his people from enslavement to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but also God, through Moses, liberating his people, at least for a period of time, from their enslavement to Satan. And it seems to me, what I argue in the chapter you referred to anyway, um, is that Hebrews is... is I don't know if Hebrews knows the book of Jubilees. I'm not making that claim. But Hebrews seems to be aware of traditions like this, which associate Passover with the defeat of the devil, with the defeat of this destroyer, this Satan figure. Uh, again, he seems to say this in 1128. But um, if Hebrews associates the death of Jesus with Passover... Uh, which would seem to be pretty natural, precisely because this is one of the things that we get a consistent tradition about from early Christian witnesses, that Jesus died at Passover. 
Then it opens space to read texts like Hebrews 2.14 and following, where the author says that the death of Jesus helped defeat the devil, and in particular, liberate um, God's people uh, from their enslavement uh, to this figure, the devil, uh, and the fear of death. That seems to me to be an allusion in Hebrews to the death of Jesus as doing something that is analogous. It's not the same as. It's much better than. Um, but but is analogous to what Moses is depicted as doing uh, in these traditions um, at the Exodus. That is, at Passover, he, because God told him to do so, um, is able to instruct the people in ways of using the blood of the Passover lamb as a means for defeating uh, this satanic destroyer. Um, And by analogy, um, although much better, Jesus' death is being associated with Passover as an event that liberates God's people from enslavement to this satanic figure, the devil, and even defeats the devil. Um, so if that, if that is an accurate reading of what's going on in that passage of Hebrews, then we actually have an analogy that's being set up that perhaps we sometimes miss, and that is that the kind of work that Moses did at Passover, Hebrews 11.28, is anticipating um, and creates an analogy for the kind of even greater and better work that Jesus does at his own crucifixion. Namely, not just liberating temporarily from the devil, but defeating, destroying the destroyer, defeating the devil, and liberating God's people uh, from their enslavement to the fear of death. Now, one other point that I think supports this sort of reading is that shortly after this idea in Hebrews 2.14 and following that Jesus' death defeats the devil, you get a comparison uh, in Hebrews 3.1-6 between Jesus and Moses. <laughs> That's not an accident. I think it's a sort of the, the author kind of filling in a logical gap um, in the earlier argument. And then subsequent to that comparison... Um, you get the idea of these early Christians being um, told to think of themselves like Israel in the wilderness. Well, where did Israel go immediately after the Passover? Moses led them into the wilderness. Uh, And then in the wilderness, the covenant is inaugurated uh, and they go on a journey towards the ultimate inheritance, the, the promised land. Hebrews seems to be working metaphorically and analogically with those kinds of ideas. Um, So, in in sum, uh, if this account of reading Hebrews is correct, we can see that this author is actually drawing heavily on Jewish figures and Jewish logics to help his readers understand who they are and sort of where they're located. They're in the wilderness, not unlike the people of Israel. Um, they're being led by, yeah, as it were, a new Moses, although the, the closer link is with Joshua, 
um, the Hebrew, the the Greek translation of Joshua is Iesus, Jesus. Um, and this figure has gone ahead of them into their promised inheritance, but like Joshua, um, you know, he's going to return to them, and they will ultimately then also um, attain that the full promised inheritance. Right. So that that would be a way that I think you can see Hebrews using figures like Moses and Joshua and alluding to events like the Passover to reflect on not just the death, but also death, rather death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus in ways that um, make it meaningful in light of Jewish scripture, in light of stories about some of the stories about Moses in the Pentateuch. So another question that I had was the subtitle of your book in the Rethinking the Atonement is New Perspectives on Jesus' Death, Resurrection, and Ascension. I am interested, is that terminology of new perspective intentional? <laughs> reference like the new perspective on Paul, is it supposed to like play into that at all? Yeah, it is an intentional illusion. Uh, yeah, very well spotted. Um yeah, so what I'm driving at here is not just that, um, at least in a lot of modern literature, some of the things I'm going to be arguing will be new, that is, different perspectives. Um, you know, the idea that there's more to atonement than just the crucifixion, or that Jesus' sacrifice involves his bodily presentation, at least in Hebrews, uh, of himself to the Father. These, I think, are new or different perspectives. Uh, relative to a lot of modern reflection on these matters, but um, but you're absolutely correct that I intended an allusion to the so-called new perspective in Paul um, when I picked up that language, um, and what I intended by that, um, you know, for those who who maybe are are going to read it a bit more carefully and, and notice that allusion is. Um, well, it ties back to what I was saying when I responded to the very last question. I really do think that Hebrews is working uh, much more intentionally and consistently than we sometimes realize with Jewish logics and Jewish ways of understanding things like sacrifice um, and and high priesthood and high priestly ministry. Um, so it is, uh, it is a very subtle, I suppose, uh, attempt to take a stab at suggesting that Hebrews is really not as uh, inherently supersessionist as many modern readers uh, and some theological systems have assumed or even tried to argue. Um, and by that word supersessionism, I mean uh, it's typically, Hebrews is often read as if it's a text that thinks that all that Jewish stuff was somehow bad and Jesus is better and it's often thought to be structured or organized around this idea you know you think angels are great but Jesus is better you think Moses is great but Jesus is better uh, Moses is really not great um, and Aaron's really not great and priesthood's not great Jesus is better uh, I think that's a mistake and that of course um, puts me directly up against significant um, elements or streams of modern Hebrews interpretation. But that's part of what that new perspective language is, is trying to, to subtly point to. That um, 
that actually Hebrews is not repudiating or rejecting these Jewish ideas. He's certainly not rejecting Jewish scripture. The Old Testament is right at the center of what Hebrews is doing. Um, Jesus is better, but the betterness of Jesus uh, hangs on the very fact that people, um, I'm assuming and trying to argue, would have understood Moses to be great. Um, so so the, the, the beauty, some of the beauty of the argument in this comparison is not that, well, G- Moses is bad and Jesus is better, but precisely that because Moses is so great, think then about how much better and how much more wonderful Jesus is. That, I think, is the way that these comparisons that run straight through Hebrews are generally tending to work. Now, there are all kinds of exegetical issues. I don't know how much you want to get into the weeds of that, but um, but that's what I'm, I'm uh, sort of subtly signaling with that language. Yeah, that's good. So there's like 10 things I'd like to ask you, but I'm going to end on... Possibly this one, just because I don't think we've spent a lot of time talking about it. I think it's interesting. So you've got a chapter sort of on the serving in the tabernacle in heaven and the sacred space sort of idea. I'm wondering, like, can you cash out a little bit of what's going on in that particular section? Why sacred space in the tabernacle is relevant to the atonement and how that functions? Okay, so um, if we go back to what I was saying earlier about sacrifice and this kind of directional component. Um, you don't offer God a sacrifice when you kill the animal. That's only part of offering the sacrifice. Uh, another way of saying this is we need to think about sacrifice as a bigger process. But that process, especially when we think of this directional side of it, um, is a process that moves from, shall we say, the mundane realm, the realm of the offerer, the person giving the gift to God, uh, into God's holy presence. Um, and at the te- tabernacle, or then later at the temple, um, I mean, this is this is very sort of geographical. It moves through real space. The offerer brings an animal to the temple, or buys one at the temple, brings it uh, to a priest, and the priest takes it to the altar, and then uh, the blood and flesh are conveyed into God's presence. And on the Day of Atonement in particular, blood is even literally, physically, taken into the Holy of Holies, um, which is in that that central part, the most holy space within the temple. Um, what What I'm trying to argue then in that chapter in Hebrews about analogical theology and a sort of heavenly uh, sacred space where you know i argue at least that the the view that hebrews takes is one that we see in other more apocalyptically minded jews who don't imagine that heaven or at least don't necessarily imagine that heaven is the temple but rather they think about an actual temple within the heavens that someone if they were to ascend or as hebrews says pass through the heavens, if you were to go up to the highest heaven, you would be entering that heavenly temple space. Um, And what I'm suggesting is that in the movement uh, through space, however this is conceived, of the resurrected Jesus uh, from earth through the heavens 
into the heavenly sanctuary and into the heavenly holy of holies, we actually have the author uh, looking at that directionality and spatial idea of passing through multiple heavens and entering the heavenly holy of holies, even passing through the veil. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of exegetical work and thought that has to go into this, uh, I must admit. But, but if we allow at a broad level this basic trajectory uh, of Jesus after the resurrection, then I think what we can see Hebrews doing is once again drawing analogies um, that would be that would make sense to people who understood, say, the Jewish Day of Atonement and thought about the most important or high or one of the most important elements of that day as the high priest leaving the people. Uh, taking the sacrificial blood into the tabernacle or temple and then ultimately into the Holy of Holies, that is, into God's presence on earth. This is the place where God's presence in some way dwelt more fully than any other space. Um, and then offering that blood as a sacrifice. Hebrews 9.7 actually speaks with this language that the high priest offers blood in the Holy of Holies. Um, Hebrews is finding in the resurrection and ascension of the Son of God, of Jesus, finding analogies to what the high priest is doing and then focusing on not just where Jesus was when he died, although that is there as a part of Hebrews, but focusing also on where Jesus has gone as he passed through the heavens. And as he's done that, he's analogously entering into God's heavenly presence, into the most sacred space in the entire cosmos, um, and there serving as a high priest and offering himself to God as a sacrifice. Um, so that for me is why, is part of the reason that, um, that I think these ideas in Hebrews uh, first of all, work the way they seem to work, and second of all, are so important for how this author then conceptualizes Jesus as both high priest and sacrifice which he offers as high priest now in the presence of the Father. Hmm. So this has been awesome. I need to remind everybody what I will always do is put a link to the book in the show description or the notes, wherever you're listening. You can click on it. It'll take you directly there. David, remind me, do you do you have a website or where's the best place for people to go to keep up on the work that you're like papers or books that <laughs> you're producing? Yeah, I, I don't have a website, um, but the University of St. Andrews, requires us to keep up to date electronically um, you know what we're doing in terms of research uh, and writing and um, presentations so uh, probably the best thing to do is just um, use Google um, and put my name in it's M-O-F-F-I-T-T -T, um, often misspelled um, but that's how it's spelled. And then with St. Andrews, and you'll probably land, if not right away, at least pretty soon on the page uh, at the University of St. Andrews where that information is. Tremendous. Well, thanks for doing this. This has been awesome. Uh, yeah, it's I think a pleasure. everybody who's 
been listening, you can tell that this is a lot of stimulating stuff here, uh, especially for guys who are preaching uh, regularly. Having sort of like material like this to help think through Hebrews, I think, is really fantastic. So thanks for your labors on this. Yeah, and my pleasure. For, for, for everybody who's been listening, thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. <laughs> and we'll talk to you guys soon. Great. Thanks a lot. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.